Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Some exchange betting companies run short-lived promotions, like months-long offers of low commission. At BetDag, we wanted to change the way we did things, so we set our commission at 2% permanently. That's 2% on football, horse racing, golf, almost any sport. 2%. That's just one way that BetDag is changing for the better. For the better, like you. BetDag, the 2% commission exchange. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hello and welcome to another special edition of the Roker Report podcast. And today we are joined by journalist, retired journalist, semi-retired? We'll say semi-retired, semi, Connor. Yeah, semi-retired journalist, Paul Hetherington, who's covered Sunland uh, from, when did you say you started, 78? Well, I, uh, I joined the Evening Chronicle in 1978, um, succeeding my dad, Len, who'd covered the club for 22 years for the Chronicle. Um Prior to that, I had um, five years on the Sunderland Echo, um, but sort of after after being sort of covering every Sunderland match home and away for the Cron, um, I moved on to the Sunder Sun as sports editor, was still involved in reporting, then the journal as chief football writer, um, obviously once again heavily involved with Sunderland, and then 30 years ago moved to Manchester. Uh, moved into national newspapers, worked for three national newspapers down there. But during that time, throughout that time, <clears throat> I was still involved in, occasionally, you know, doing Sunderland matches. Yeah. And who do you cover in Manchester, normally the two Manchester clubs? Um, my main job, um, well, for the last 16 years, I was football editor of the Daily Star Sunday, helping to launch the paper. My main job was to cover England, my main responsibility but I was heavily involved with all the clubs down there, particularly Manchester United. Um, I seem to have spent um, you know, the last 16 years of my life either at Old Trafford or Carrington, United's mm-hmm. training ground. Um, particularly heavily involved with them. Um, and that was you know, a great experience because you, you are dealing with the biggest club in the country. <clears throat> not, the, not the best team in the country at the moment, but definitely the biggest club. Biggest club in the world, arguably. Arguably, I think it's them or Real Madrid. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was going to ask a brief overview of your career, but you, you've done that. So the first question, really, and it's always a good one, is why are you a Sunderland fan? Right. Um, 
I was brought up as a Sunderland fan by my because of my dad's association with the club, reporting the club. I was actually born, um, I suppose you could say, uh, the wrong side of the tracks. I was born in North Shields, brought up in Whitley Bay. Um, so I was heavily outnumbered at school by uh, the black and whites. Same. Yes. I'm Blythe. So <laughs> okay, well, you, you know the situation. <laughs> um, but I was brought up as a Sunderland fan and uh, attended my first match in 1960 as a fan at Roker Park, Sunderland v Portsmouth. We won 2-0. Uh, now I'm semi-retired. I'm allowed to refer to Sunderland as we. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then became, you know, you know, very passionate about the club as a as a fan. Um, in my teenage years, I was going to every home game. I was going to a lot of away games, getting up four, five o'clock in the morning to to get the supporters club coaches from Jarrow. John Tennant used to run those coaches all over the country. Um, so um, you know, it's it's been very much in my blood since then. Did you cover the '73 Cup final as a writer, or were you there as a fan? <clears throat> I was there as a fan. Um, I was a working journalist then. Uh, I was actually covering some Sunderland stuff then, doing Sunderland stories then. Um, I, I was actually had my own freelance business at that time. Um, that's another story. Um, um, but I I went to the the final um, as a supporter um, with my mum and with my brother Clive, um, who who has kept the family dynasty going by by moving into journalism and Clive has, uh, you know, he's been on the scene a long time now in the North East, freelance journalist, worked for a lot of papers um, up here. So, uh, so yeah, I was at Wembley 73. Um, I was there as a Sunderland supporter. Um, and, you know, if you were born when I was born and brought up at that time, um, the highlight of your Sunderland supporting time uh, was that cup final, um, which is understandable, of course. Greatest day in the club's history since the Second World War. And then you obviously would have went to 85? Yes. We would have been reporting on that one, I presume. Uh, yes, that's true. And um, 92 as well, the Liverpool, Liverpool final. Yeah, so... Um, but 73, obviously, was 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 from a, from a Sunderland supporting point of view a magical time because not only was it probably the the most unlikely FA Cup win ever um, it was achieved by beating the best teams in the country it wasn't a question of you know getting lucky draws or easy draws or you know at that time probably the best three teams in the country were Leeds United Arsenal and Manchester City and as you know Sunderland defeated all three and uh, as they won the cup and your dad obviously covered Sunderland. Yeah. Um, is he the inspiration, I suppose, for you and your brother to go into journalism? He must have had good stories for you to want to follow his footsteps. Definitely. Yeah. Um, um, you know, when I, when, I, when I was brought up, um, obviously every other weekend, my dad was away with the, with the football club for the away matches. Um, I couldn't wait for him to come home and, and tell me about, you know, the match, the trip. Um Sadly, in those days, more often than not, when he came back, it was after a defeat. Um, Such as those days, these days as well, until this season. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I would, I'd be sitting at home on a Saturday afternoon when I was very young, waiting for the results to come through. And, um, and, 
usually I, I used to go around the house slamming all the doors <laughs> because they'd lost again. But but yeah, you're right. My dad was was the inspiration in terms of being a Sunderland supporter and also the inspiration for wanting to go into journalism. And the same applied to my brother Clive. So what was 1973 like for him? For my dad? Yeah. Um, it was a fantastic experience, as you'd imagine. It was something he never thought would happen. He was he was used to sort of um, promotion relegation situations and and you know more often than not disappointments. Um, and the club took off under Bob Stoko. Uh, my dad had a very good relationship with Bob. Um, Bob was a was an Evening Chronicle reader. Spent all his life reading the Evening Chronicle. Um, he probably knew as much about my dad as my dad did about him. Um, and when Stoko took over in '72, um, he immediately struck up um, an appropriate word for this program, a great rapport mm -hmm. uh, with my dad. And um, obviously, you know, that particular time was 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 easily the the most exciting time for my dad covering the club because winning the cup meant they also actually played in Europe, European Cup Winners' Cup. Only two matches, Bashas, Budapest and Sporting Lisbon, but that was two European trips for my dad as well. Um, so obviously he always remembered those times with great affection. And then it, you would have covered Sunderland when Bob came back. So yes. does that, did you have a relationship with him then from you being younger? Um, yes, I'd, um, I, I knew Bob um, before he, he returned to Sunderland. Um, I, uh, I had some professional dealings dealings with him. Um, I also wrote a, wrote a book called Sunderland Greats, which was a, a book about which had to be set post-war. Um, and one of the chapters in that. Um, I I uh, persuaded Bob. It wasn't difficult to persuade him actually, um, just to pick his best post-war Sunderland team of of the players he'd played against, uh, and players he'd managed against, and players he'd managed himself. Um, and um, Bob being Bob, um, I went over to Carlisle to see him. And he uh, he said, right, let me think about this for 24 hours. And he he was very thorough, very professional about it. Um, picked his his uh, his Sunderland his best post-war Sunderland team. Um, explained why he uh, certain players were left out, why certain players were selected, why certain players might have seemed to be out of position. For instance, he had Colin Todd at right back because his two centre-backs just had to be Charlie Hurley and Dave Watson. So where do you put Colin Todd? You put him right back. So your brother covers North East football. Your dad was a journalist. Mm. Your partners must hate, well, must have hated Christmas dinners because you must have just spoke about football the whole time. Yeah, that's true. Um, my wife, uh, um, Sue, has got used to, to it up to a point. She still doesn't totally get it. Um, she should do. She's from Sunderland. Um, and her dad, uh, George Gailey, was not a journalist, but he worked at the Sunderland Echo. Um, so, you know, she, she should understand it. And um, But you're right, in terms of the, of the, the conversations, um, you know, my dad and I and, and Clive, we often used to, sadly my dad died in 1998, but we, you know, 
when he was alive and well, the three of us loved going for a pint or two or three or more and discussing all things football, but in particular all things Sunderland. We had Alan Durbin on the podcast at the weekend um, and you apparently had a, a good relationship with him. So what was what was he like? Because I met him the other day and he's quite a character, but I'm sure you have plenty of stories. In fact, what's your favourite Alan Durbin story? I'll put you on the spot. My favourite Alan Durbin story, uh, which I can tell on air. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what, it's a slightly funny story, this one. Um, and it doesn't really directly involve Sunderland, but, but when Alan lost his job... Um, at Sunderland, um, he he returned to 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 uh, the game as manager of Cardiff City, <clears throat> and um, the day he was appointed, um, he met me uh, for a celebratory drink in Newcastle. Uh, there was three of us actually went out for a drink. Uh, myself, Alan, who was still living in the northeast that time at Yarm, and John Richardson. Another well-known journalist, good friend of mine. Um, John worked up here for the journal and worked for for numerous other papers. Um, after that, you know, the Sun, the Daily Mail, the Sunday Express, and uh, the three of us went out uh, to celebrate with Alan that he's returned to football. The next day, he was actually travelling down to Cardiff to be unveiled, um, and. Um, the, the reporter on the South Wales Echo at the time, my sort of oppo down there, was a guy called Joe Lovejoy, who became better known later on in his career at the Sunday Times. And uh, Alan was actually round in my flat at the time in South Gosforth. Joe just happened to rang, ring me up and he said, he said, oh, Derbs has got the, your mate Derbs has got the, the card of job. I said, yeah, I know that. He says, is there any way at all I could get a hold of him? I said, yeah, hang on, I'll put him on. <laughs> and I handed the phone to Alan Durbin and I said, Joe Lovejoy, South Wales Echo, just give him an interview. And and so Derbs answered all Joe's questions. The phone was passed back to me and Joe said, I just can't believe that. And he said, that's the easiest exclusive I've ever had in my life. You know, <laughs> thanks very much. But Alan Durbin um, was a great character. He was also a good manager. Um, I found him um, very good to deal with. Um, very, th- you know, as a, as a as a manager, very thorough, very professional. Uh, made sure he, he got things organised at the back defensively to start with. Um, he he built a good young team at Sunderland. You know, you think about Barry Venison and Nick Pickering, and he brought through, and then he added pe- players like Paul Bracewell, Mark Proctor, to the mix. Um, <clears throat> when he, f- he eventually realised he needed a bit of experience and a bit of flair. Um, he brought in Frank Worthington, he brought in Leighton James, um, and Alan was close to getting it right. Those were times of struggle, um, but I, I believed he was very much on the right lines. And he uh, he, he got sacked basically after they'd lost in, uh, an FA Cup tie, and, um, and I, I felt that was a wrong decision. The club should have stuck with him. And we obviously said he built a very good team, but was the second of Alan the reason why we got pretty much double relegated in the years to follow I mean there's other factors obviously you can talk about Lloyd McMenemy who we will bring up but yeah Um, well Sunderland replaced Alan with Len Ashurst um, who of course had a great association with the club I think he made over 400 appearances for the club Len left back Um, and 
Len totally changed things, um, and he he put the emphasis at that time on bringing in. Uh, he had this thing about pace, and he brought in as many quick players as he could think of. You know, I'm, I'm off the top of my head, Gary Bennett was brought in to play centre half. Uh, Howard Gale, David Hodgson, players like this, um, and initially, it worked. I have to say, initially it worked. They obviously got to a cup final. Um, but after that, things fell away badly, and and um, I think you're right in terms of a, of a of a slippery slope. They were on it for the next few years after this after they sacked Alan. What was Tom Curry like? Uh, Alan pretty much said he had a, an okay relationship with him, but it it ended up going sour. But he's a figure that's very divisive. People generally don't like him I think that's fair mm-hmm. to say but what was your sort of dealings with him did you think he was a, a good chairman uh, a good person how did you feel about him he tried to be a good chairman you would imagine he would try to be a good chairman he had great ambitions he was determined to deliver a top manager uh, to Sunderland um, you know he tried to get um, Brian Clough he tried to get Bobby Robson Um he did appoint Allen, um, and eventually, of course, Laurie McMenemy, who'd been another long-standing target, came in. Um, Tom Cowie was bemused why, despite all his best efforts, results just weren't good enough. And I think a few people who've been involved at Sunderland over the years have <laughs> have had a similar similar feeling. So when you look back at, the, at, at that particular time, um, the Cowie era was not a success. Um, but to be fair to him, it, it wasn't for the want of trying or, or for the ambition he had. You know, he was a very successful businessman um, and he thought that he could bring that business acumen into football. He wasn't the first chairman to find it's not as simple as that. And... Uh, Laurie McMenemy, how, how did you find him? Obviously, that went disastrously, to say the least. But you know, why did it go so bad? I mean, I'm, it's been talked about many times. Well, I would be interested mm. to hear your opinion on it. Yeah. Um, see, once again, Laurie, um, I got a, I knew Laurie well before he became manager of of uh, of Sunderland. Um, he did a remarkable job at Southampton. Um, I thought, like most people did, that this was a great appointment. Um, Laurie had a formula at Southampton of signing a lot of proven, experienced top players. Um, and but, but what tended to happen was once he'd, once he'd done the groundwork there and he had his team in place, he would add, he'd add a top player, then add another one. He wasn't adding a lot all at once. And at Sunderland, he tried to, he tried to implement that formula at Sunderland um, bringing in a lot of experienced players, and they just didn't gel um, for whatever reason. Um, and Laurie, I think once again, Laurie was somebody else who couldn't understand why things weren't going better than they were, really. Um, and results just weren't good enough. Um, the crowd quickly became disillusioned. Um, once a crowd turns uh, on a manager, as you know, um, you know that be- it then becomes very difficult to turn things around. Um, there was there was a huge feeling of being let down, anticlimax. There was a lot of attention 
placed on on the amount of money the club were paying Laurie at the time. Um, I mean, by today's standards, it doesn't look a lot, but but, but at that time, by those standards, it was a lot. And it it just didn't work for Laurie, and... um, they stayed up by uh, by the skin of their teeth in his his first season there. It's quite an interesting story actually. Um, on the Saturday that Sunderland stayed up, um, the next at night the sun, on the Sunday it was the North East Football Writers Dinner in Durham. I was chairman. Um, f- um, a few weeks before the function, Laurie pulled out. Told me he wouldn't be able to make it. Um, I was absolutely convinced that he and he was going to be the main speaker as well because he was a ter- terrific speaker mm-hmm. after dinner speaker. And he pulled out, um, and I was, it was quite clear to me that he pulled out because the results were so bad. And he was worried about the reception he would get in a in a dinner, which majority of people in the room were Sunderland supporters. Um, I then had the problem of finding a, a, a substitute guest speaker at relatively short notice. I got Tommy Doherty to come and do it. Um, I used my good friend Mick Doherty, of course, another someone else with a great Sunderland association, Tommy's son. Mick persuaded Tommy to come and do it, even though that day he was at Hamden Park for a testimonial match for Kenny Dalgleish. And Tommy, immediately after the match at Hamden, um, had a driver who brought him down to the Three Tons at Durham for the dinner. And uh, so Tommy was was the guest speaker that night. Sunderland won on Saturday to stay up. There was that famous scene of Laurie walking around the pitch waving a white flag at the crowd. Sunday morning, I get a phone call from Laurie. Um, uh, Paul, um, things have changed. I'll be able to come to the dinner tonight. I said, "Okay, great. Come along. Delighted to see you. But you realise you won't be the main guest speaker. You'll be coming as manager of Sunderland on the Mm -hmm. top table because I've had to replace you. He said, oh, all right, okay then. So he seemed a bit disappointed, actually. Um, I think he fancied the stage after after, a good day the day before. Anyway, he rolled up at the dinner. And I said, right, now you're here, I want you to sing for your supper. And he says, what do you mean? I said, well, I've got a presentation tonight to Bishop Auckland, your old club. I want you to do that. We ended up having a brilliant dinner because Tommy Doherty was terrific and very funny. And Laurie got up, made a great presentation to Bishop Auckland and also spoke very well and also obviously touched on Sunderland and how they'd managed to turn it round and his, his hopes for the next season. But, of course, things didn't improve yeah. the next season. And... Um, once, once there's problems, once things are going in the right direction in football, it's very hard to turn it around. Dennis Smith, um, uh, pretty well liked figure in Sunderland. Obviously, two promotions with him. How, what was he like when he came in, and how did he change things? Was it kind of like what we've had this year, where you get a clean slate? It was a new owner as well, or did he do something else? Dennis was was the perfect appointment at the time. Um, because he understood the division Sunderland were in, uh, which obviously is the same division they're in now. Um, it's only twice in the history that's happened. Um, Dennis knew the division, knew what was needed, looked at what he'd inherited um, and decided, you know, there were some players there, particularly Eric Gates, who he could keep. Um, and he believed get the best out of him and bring in players who he felt were perfectly suited to that d- division. Um, his big signing was Marco Gabbiadini. Uh, Gabbiadini and Gates produced p- 
um, a lot of goals and they, they were a great combination. Um, John McPhail, another player that um, Dennis knew very well, he brought him to play at centre-half. He was a goal-scoring centre-half, very good penalty taker from memory. Um, Dennis understood what was required to get promotion. Good manager. Um, and uh, and he did a he did a great job. Um, I still see Dennis occasionally. He lives not far from me. He's obviously at Stoke. I'm just slightly, I'm pretty about forty miles from actually where I live in the Manchester area now, North Cheshire. Um, and um, you know, I, I'll always I always look at that particular time um, with, with with fondness and affection. You know, for for Dennis, who was a, who was a a good manager and um, that was the time um, I launched my book actually um, and um, Dennis uh, was one of the guys who came along uh, on the night to support the launch of the book at Roker Park uh, Bob Murray wrote the forward to that um, Jimmy Montgomery came along that night um, Brian Pop Robson and um, I had a great night I was grateful f- to Dennis for his support and backing uh, and as as a somebody who cared about Sunderland, always has done, always will, still does, um, I was I was grateful to to Dennis for what he did for the club because I thought he was an excellent appointment and an excellent manager. And the final thing, really, I want to touch on from your time covering Sunderland was the the Swindon playoff final. Yeah, uh, I was talking to Bob the other day, and he swears he was the only one who knew that Sunderland were going up irrespective of the result. But what do you remember of that day and sort of the week that? that followed where, you know, they lost the final, but then they ended up going up. Did you have a feeling they were going to go up? <clears throat> um, do you mean before the match itself? Before or? the match, did you did you think, no matter what the result, they were going to go up? Because if I remember rightly, it was Newcastle had a claim. And mm-hmm. I can't remember who the relegated team from the uh, the top division was. Yes. But three teams had a claim and Sunderland yeah, ended up winning. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Sunderland had defeated Newcastle, hadn't they, yeah. in, the, in the playoff semi-final to get there, so I, I couldn't quite follow Newcastle's claim. Just because they finished third. Yeah. They were the highest place finish. Yeah, so, okay, fair enough. That was obviously why they thought they might have a case, which was reasonable. Um, I think as Sunderland had actually got to the final, Sunderland felt their claim was stronger. Did I think Sunderland would beat Swindon that day? Um, yes, I did. Um, the, the the match itself was was very much an anticlimax from, from a Sunderland point of view. Um, they didn't play well enough on the day. I thought Swindon were the better team from memory, passed the ball better. Um, and uh, was I convinced that Sunderland would um, would still go up regardless because of the, because of the Swindon situation? No, I wasn't convinced at all. No. It was a massive bonus. And and for once, it, once Sunderland got lucky, if you like, and it's not often that's happened in my time. What was it like when you found out? How did you find out that it was, you know, they were going to get promoted? And obviously that, that's a big change for you as well because yeah. you're going to top division grounds now and not second division grounds. Yeah, that's true. Um, I don't know, the story was evolving. Um, and uh, it was it was clear that that you know that Swindon would not get the get the promotion promotion place. So uh, I, th- I think you know it, it eventually became clear that they weren't going up. It's a question of who would. It then became sort of felt at the time that Sunderland were probably the favourites to get that place and. Um, in terms of how, how did I find out? I mean, I, 
you know, there was there was lots of stories running at the time that this was now look, looking likely. And of course, it was then the official announcement which confirmed it. Um, and then there was a question of, right, well, we're, we're moving up a division, but, um, you know, will we be able to handle it? You know, we haven't been quite good enough to win mm-hmm. promotion outright, either through a playoff final or through a league position. So, um, but anyway, you, you, you get up and you worry about that once you're there, yeah. don't you? Some exchange betting companies run short-lived promotions, like months-long offers of low commission. At BetDAC, we wanted to change the way we did things, so we set our commission at 2% permanently. That's 2% on football, horse racing, golf, almost any sport. 2%. That's just one way that BetDAC is changing for the better. For the better, like you. BetDAC, the 2% commission exchange. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Right, I want to jump to Peter Reid. So, Bob, the other day, I mentioned your name uh, with Peter Reid and he gave you some of the credit, a lot of the credit, to be fair, connecting Peter with something. Mm-hmm. So, how did that come about? How did you end up recommending Peter for the job and yep. Peter getting the job? And what was the, the story behind that? The story behind that was that um, Bob and I um, used to meet up um, occasionally for lunch. Um, I'd moved to Manchester. Um, We would meet up periodically, usually in Manchester or Leeds, for a lunch, have a chat. On one or two occasions, I'd interview him for the the paper. I was on the News of the World at that time. Um, Other times, we would just meet up and have lunch, chew the fat, Mm -hmm. have a glass of wine. Uh, I remember taking Bob and Sue with my wife to the Savoy for dinner at a football writers' tribute night as well. We were we got on well. We were in re- regular contact. Um, as I say, Bob kindly wrote the forward to the book I did, and um, we were having lunch in a restaurant in Manchester called Harper's. Um, the restaurant's still there. It's no longer called Harper's. It's no longer the same restaurant. Uh, but this was a real football haunt in in Manchester. It was run by a Spanish guy called Felix, who was actually brought to Manchester by George Best when Bestie was um, opening nightclubs, bars, restaurants. He was in his pomp, his heyday, <laughs> and he brought Felix over to run the restaurant. Felix survived, the restaurant survived, Bestie didn't. Um, but... Coincidentally, a few weeks before I'd been in Harper's with Bob, I'd been in with Reedy. And Reedy at the time was player coach at Man City. And we'd had a general chat about things. Anyway, over lunch with Bob, um, Bob kind of indicated to me that Mick Buxton, who was manager at the time at Sunderland, um, his position was, how can I put it, was under review. Results weren't quite good enough. The club was stagnating, wasn't really going anywhere. So Bob said to me, if we were to make a change managerially, who would you recommend? I said, Peter Reid. He went, it's an interesting one. He said, why? I said, well, I think Peter Reid would galvanise the place. He's brilliant in the dressing room. He'd get the best out of what you've got. He'd lift the crowd as well as the team. And Bob said... Do you think Reedy would take it? I said, he would take it like a shot. He would, um, he would, he wanted, um, 
put it this way, really talked to me a lot about playing for Bolton in particular at Roker Park in front of 50-odd thousand people in the fantastic atmosphere. And uh, Peter was Peter was actually um, very interested in the whole Sunderland situation, saw it as one of, the, one of the most exciting jobs in the country. Just to recap there slightly, when I said he, he was player-coach, he, 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 the first time I went to Harpers actually with Peter, he was player-coach at Man City. He later became the manager mm-hmm. and had lost his job, so he was he was available, yeah. he was out of work. Let's clarify that. Um, so um, anyway, a few weeks later, I got a phone call on a Monday night from Bob saying, we've decided to make a change. Um, we've had a board meeting. We're very interested in, in Peter can you get in touch with him and ask him if he'll come for an interview? So I, I then had the hard job on a Monday night of tracking Reedy down, who was out and about in Manchester somewhere. Um, I rang everyone I knew who knew him. Um, eventually, we eventually found him. He rang me back, Reedy rang me back, and it was something like midnight on the Monday night, and he said, you're chasing me? And I said, yeah. I said, you've got an interview for the Sunderland job tomorrow. <laughs> And he went, right, where have I got to be? Who am I seeing? What's happening? You know, so I said, it's in Sheffield. Um, and in Sheffield? Sheffield was on the... Uh, I think there was... I think the... Uh, I think the director who actually met him was Graham Wood, and I think he was living over there, that area. So that was the initial meeting. Things went from there. Um, Reedy was appointed, and... Um, he actually, he, you know, Peter's got a book out at the moment. He actually does, he does sort of mention that that um, that he, he got a call from me telling telling him that the Sunderland job could well be his. Um, so yeah, so that was um, that was sorted out, um, and um, it was something which worked very well for the best part of seven years. Did you get an agent fee? Sounds to me like you were an agent there. I did not get an agent fee. <laughs> you should have asked. <laughs> um, I, um, I the daft thing was, I was the first one to know that Reedy was was getting the job, and I was probably the last one to write it because um, I was on the Sunday paper then. Well, I was on Sunday papers most of my career eventually, but I was I was on the News of the World then. This all happened in midweek. I knew chapter and verse what was going on, and I couldn't write a word because. I had to wait for Sunday to do anything about it, by which time Peter had been installed in the job. Um, so I came up for the press conference at Roker. After the press conference was all over, Reedy and I went for a drink and he gave me an interview. Um, and uh, we're, still in, we're still in touch. I was with him just a couple of weeks ago at the Football Writers' Dinner in Manchester um actually spoke to him last week because he was he was up in the northeast last yeah, week he was at the game on, on saturday uh, he rang me from the when he was up here uh wanting a phone number for somebody up here um and uh and he actually said then let's have lunch soon fair play <laughs> what was your relationship like with bob murray uh my relationship with bob was very good um you know, we, we the great thing we had in common was a passion for for Sunderland Football Club. Um, we haven't spoken for a long time, which is something I I regret. Maybe Bob does as well. Um, we didn't exactly fall out, but when when um, Sunderland eventually sacked Reedy, um, I was in Bratislava at the time with England for a match, 
and it was quite clear the writing was on the wall, on the wall for Peter. He was sacked, and Howard Wilkinson was replacing him. And while I obviously, you know, respected the club's right to change a manager, even though the manager was a friend of mine and I'd been kind of instrumental in in him arriving at Sunderland, I did understand that you know results, you know, had fallen off. And if the club felt a change was necessary, then that was their right to do that. Um, at the time, I did not agree with Howard Wilkinson replacing him. History ra- has proved you right. <laughs> <laughs> and I rang Bob and told him from Bratislava. I made the call from Bratislava, and he, and he said, "Oh, he said I was dreading this call. He said I knew you'd be on." And I said, "Look, Bob. I said I'm not so much ringing up to say I disagree with the sacking of Reedy. I said." I just can't understand why you're replacing it with Howard Wilkinson. Because I said, Howard has done some great things in his career, been very successful. Um, but I said that was a few few years earlier. And in my opinion, Howard managerially at the time was yesterday's man. And I told Bob that. And uh, Bob said, oh, he's the last Englishman to win the league title. And I said, yeah, I said, I'm aware of all that. But I said, I don't think you made the right appointment there. And um, we kind of uh, agreed to disagree and um, that, you know, we've then sort of gone our separate ways in a way. Um, But um, I still have great respect for Bob and um, certainly um, he got more right at Sunderland than he got wrong. Yeah. And what about Peter? How was your relationship like with him? You know, back to... When when did you first meet him? With Reedy? Yeah. Um, Well... I knew Reedy um, as, as, as as you know when he was a player. I mean, but I I was very friendly with Howard Kendall, and when Howard became manager of of Man City, he brought Peter as player coach. Um, so I saw a bit, got to see a bit more of Reedy, got to know him better. Uh, Realised uh, what great company he was, a very passionate football person, obviously. Um, and um, we were, became sort of in touch on a regular basis, really. I used to speak to him most weeks, phone calls, the sort of phone calls journalists make, check calls, um, see what's going on. And uh, obviously my dealings with him increased when he was became manager of, of City. Um, and as I say, you know, we're, we're friends. We're still in touch now. Um He's he's one of those people you want to go out for lunch with, really, because it's good fun. And um, there's a few bottles of wine get demolished in the process, <laughs> I'll tell you. But um, he's uh, he's someone with very strong opinions, and uh, we have great debates. Uh, we have a big laugh, um, and he's he's just a super guy, really. And I'm pleased that you know things obviously went a little bit sour for him at the end. At Sunderland, um, that's all down to results because the results govern everything. But um, he's always wanted to come back in some shape or form. And on one or two occasions, it might have happened, it almost happened. Um, but certainly the fans, I think, when they look at the, you know, the, the Reedy era, if you like, two seventh place mm-hmm. finishes in the top flight, the Premier League, um, they remember him with great affection. He's always very welcome up here at supporters club dues and, and gets a great reception and rightly so. 
you said something there, which I'm not going to ask for an exact mm. date, but you said he might have come back a couple of times. Do you mean as a, a manager? Um, he was. He was certainly would have come back as a manager. I think he thought he was going to come back on the staff under Sam Allardyce. Right, because Allardyce obviously yeah. get along. Yeah, big Sam. When Big Sam got the job, um, really, really hoped that Sam would would bring him back as part of the staff and really would have would have been happy to come back as assistant manager or or whatever title big sam yeah. wanted to give him um you, you know he he wasn't um of a mind that he had to be manager um he just wanted to come back and be involved in Sunderland football club and help the club and and support sam and that I think Sam, well, I'm certain Sam thought about it. What Sam eventually decided to do was retain the staff, Paul Bracewell and Robbie Stockdale. Mm-hmm. He decided to keep them. Um, and obviously things went well that season, didn't they? Yeah. Ended up very good, very positive. I know I actually had a chat with Sam about about it. Um, and Sam's view in his mind was that Reedy is a manager. He is a number one not number two or yeah. a number three or whatever. Um, so it didn't happen. Um, certainly on one or two other occasions, there's been so many managerial changes at Sunderland. I know Reedy um, was always pretty high up in the in the betting to return. Um, it became generally known, I think, it, certainly in my business journalistically, that he, he'd love to come back to the club. And given his record... I'm, I think the club did consider him on one or two occasions, although decided not to go in that direction. Um, but probably the closest he felt he, he, he might have been to a return was when Sam was manager. Did it surprise you to see how well Peter did at Sunderland? I don't mean surprise in like a, a nasty way. I mean <clears> it <throat> in the sense of he came into a club that was about to go in the third division. Yes. They moved into the stadium, the academy, finished uh-huh. seventh. Did it surprise you how well it went no um, I thought he would be what they needed at the time he, he did exactly what I, what I said he would do he, he galvanised the dressing room um, he got the team organised um, he created a, a terrific team spirit they stayed up that was his first job um, the fans obviously took to him uh, he even made a record about him of course <laughs> um, and Things started rolling. The the club was on a roll. Um, I know there was a, a one relegation, you know, setback, uh, and they. But even those days, you know, were exciting. Immediately after that, when probably limited resources and everything else, they went down from from the in the top flight. Um, last day of the season, wasn't it? Defeat, which mm-hmm. sent them down. They they almost stayed up, almost against the odds. Um, but the, the the club took off again when they moved to the Stadium of Light, um, because Roca Park, fantastic old ground that it was in its in its heyday. When I first went there, I was there with sixty thousand people in the ground. Um, obviously, by the time the ground closed, it was down to about seventeen thousand or something like that. Twenty three. Twenty three was the capacity. But it was never ever no, sold out. No, they were getting crowds of seventeen, eighteen, yeah. things like that, weren't they? And um, they moved to the stadium alight, a new stadium, the bigger crowds, more revenue being generated, um, good signings being made. 
um, and a, and a team which played with style. You know, everyone will always remember the Phillips Quinn mm-hmm. combination, Summerby and Johnson on the wings. You know, those the crosses flying in, those two getting on the end of them, and um, you know the even when that. The, even when they needed two goals at coming back after that relegation, obviously there was a playoff final yeah. defeat, one of the most remarkable matches Did you go? ever. Um, I was in America on holiday at the time and uh, I had a holiday booked well in advance and um, so I, I didn't go to that one. Uh, I rang up to find out what the result was and couldn't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> the circumstances in which they'd lost. Um, but even that was an obviously was a very exciting season. The following season was successful, and then the way they did in the Premier League, I suppose that was a big leap forward, wasn't it? Two seventh place finishes. Uh, but as I say, I wasn't surprised because I had a good team and a terrific team spirit, and the the club was on a roll. I remember at one stage in one of those seasons, they actually climbed as high as second in the yeah. Premier League. I think we played Manchester United. First three second, mm-hmm. I believe, yeah. in two thousand and one, maybe. Yes, yeah. Um, but as a, as a journalist based in Manchester mm-hmm. at the time, what was the view of Sunderland at that time? Because you know they were a club, brand new stadium, you know, one of the biggest yeah. in the country at the time. Uh-huh. Uh, constantly in them Champions League places, fell away twice. But at the time, did people think these are the real deal? These will be a, a top seven club, you know, for the foreseeable future. You'd be surprised how much interest I have found there is in Manchester, in in Sunderland. Um, Both United and City, sort of people within the club, but also supporters of the two clubs, view Sunderland as a special club. Um, The fans of those two clubs always loved coming up to the northeast. I can go back to Roker Park days. Um, And then, of course, Stadium of Light days. Now, you might say they like coming up because they usually won. But, of course, that wasn't always the case. And uh, but they like coming up to a what they consider to be a proper football club with good fans and a great atmosphere. And there's always been I've always found great interest in Sunderland generally. Um, I mean, obviously, people down there over the years have been aware of my association with Sunderland. But quite often now, if I'm if I'm at Man United, people like Paddy Crerand, Arthur Olbiston will come up to me and say. What about the Black Cats? You know, <laughs> see that a good win last week? Or what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Um, and there, there is a lot of interest, a lot of respect for Sunderland's history. There's a lot of respect for Sunderland supporters. You know, the numbers in which they turn up, even in times of struggle. Yeah. Um, and uh, and particularly fantastic. Sunderland have always had, as you know, fantastic away support. And um, you know the. The clubs in Manchester um, have, a, as I say, huge respect for Sunderland. And at that particular time, in answer to your question, Connor, about the two seventh-place finishes, the view down there was, wow, Sunderland are heading back to where they should be. And they're a good team. And I suppose with that, we also have to kind of analyse where it went wrong. So I think people often point to Niall Quinn um, <clears throat> finishing up. I think there's other factors. I think recruitment was poor. But where do you think it went wrong for, I suppose, Peter and Bob Murray at Sunderland? Yeah, um, it, it became, I suppose it became hard to sort of sustain that level 
without they needed even greater investment i would say in in the in the squad and um i suppose it, it was a time when there was more and more foreign ownership of football clubs mm-hmm. and owners pumping in more money than than other clubs like Sunderland were had available i think they got sort of slightly left behind a bit um and and then we had this sort of almost season after season after peter of of these you know great escape type seasons when we're fighting for mm. survival um and what really really frustrated me was was you know i really felt the club had something going again when sam came in i thought that was a great appointment um from the end of january of that season he was in charge when the transfer window closed the squad had been strengthened you know the three k's kone kasri kirchhoff um came in with specific jobs to do which they did well that season and between the end of january and end of the season sunderland's form was the eighth best in the premier league and there were some memorable matches of course fantastic results um the club was on a high at the end of the season there was huge optimism um i then went off to france to cover england at euro 2016 and when england lost to iceland and roy hodgson immediately quit i thought to myself this is going to be bad news for my club because i am convinced the fa will go for big mm-hmm. sam and i am convinced he will take that job and i spoke to sam um shortly after euro 2016 he was on holiday in spain he was preparing for the new season as manager of sunderland and um i said what about england he said they haven't been in touch yet i says they are going to be in touch he said well maybe we'll see i said so what happens when they get in touch he said he says you know something he says can't quote me on this at the moment but he said that's the one job i would leave sunderland for he said i've looked at all the club options he said i am not going to get a better job in club football than this now he said you could maybe argue everton which of course he later went to um because he said there might just be more money available there to spend on players he says i'm not going to get man united i'm not going to get man city i'm not going to get liverpool i'm not going to get spurs i'm not going to get arsenal i'm not going to get chelsea so he said sunderland fantastic big club great support he said i'm not going to get a better job than this unless it's england and he says if it's england he said i could not possibly turn that down and of course just when things were going right things went wrong again and I, and the, the last two seasons prior to this season you know like all sunderland fans i can't believe how bad things have been because when you lose sam i thought the best possible replacement perhaps was david moyes same yeah i was happy to see moyes come in um the day moyes took charge and he went to a pre-season friendly at rotherham he sent me a text saying we'll be climbing up the league and well that didn't quite go according no. to plan did it mm-hmm. and i mean so much went wrong that season and uh 
you know, I have to say, as much as I like David, and I do think he's a decent manager, um, he got off on the wrong foot. It was the Middlesbrough game. Yeah. Uh, you'll remember the quote where yeah, he pretty I'd, much just said we were in a relegation yeah, fight. Yeah, it, and he didn't need to say that. He he argues he was being honest, and I suppose you could say he was proved right, but he didn't need to say it. It sent the wrong signal. It created the wrong mood about the whole place, probably in the dressing room, definitely among the fans. And uh, things that season just went from bad to worse, and yet I couldn't believe how you know the way things were going. Um, you know, the, the, Sam had, there was a team in place when at the end of that season under Sam, and that team didn't last long, did it? No. You could have brought Jan and Via back. Yeah, no. I could sit here all day to be honest. Well, I know. But it was Sam kept... What mm. was weird about him is he kept players fit. Mm-hmm. Kirchhoff literally mm-hmm. never fit his whole career, but he had him fit. Yeah. Moyes comes in, yeah. not fit. What was Sam doing? How can he keep a player fit and other managers can't? Sam, Sam is a master of managing players with injuries. Basically, don't, don't bother train. training. Yeah. He don't. did that with Andy Carroll, didn't he? Yeah. Well. Don't bother training, you know. And I think Moisey had an idea that everyone had to train the same and that to train at a very intense level. And Kirchhoff soon broke down. He's made a class. You know. He always was. <laughs> yeah. And and But Sam just managed that injury problem. I mean, when Sam signed Kirchhoff, um, he went to watch him. He was at Bayern Munich at the time, but not in the team getting the odd game but Sam went over to to Germany to watch Kirchhoff watch Bayern Munich play on a Sunday and Kirchhoff didn't play I think he was on the bench and didn't even get on so Sam didn't see him so um, Sam spoke to Pep Guardiola who was manager of mm-hmm. Bayern at the time um, went to watch Bayern train the next day he actually went to watch Kirchhoff train and like what he saw in training. You know, managers often place great store in what they see in training. And um, it influences decisions, it certainly influences influences team selection. Certainly what Sam saw that day of Kirchhoff persuaded him he could do a job from. Um, and then having said all that about training, he then made sure he didn't overtrain, didn't train too mm-hmm. much to keep him fit. So that worked. Um, Moisey didn't like Kazri. Yeah. Took against him straight away. Questioned his fitness. Um, And the team started to to break up. And a a new team was... I mean, Umvia was a big miss. They had this attitude that they were going to sign him for nothing when he was out of contract. Didn't work out, of course. They'd have been far better off just spending some of the money. Well, Moisey had thirty million to spend when he when he replaced Sam, and he he had to decide because he talked to him about this. He had to decide whether to make one big major signing, splash thirty million on one, you know, flagship signing, or bring in a number of players to increase the, the squad strength depth. Decided to go sort of numerically, if you like, rather than the one big signing. I think the one big signing at the time he was looking at was Christian Benteke. Who ended up at Palace. Yes. Probably um, wouldn't have worked, to be fair. <laughs> yeah, well, he was thinking Benteke and Defoe as a pair. 
Yeah, you know, yeah, maybe. something to it. Maybe. So um, I think probably. Um, but um, he brought in a number of players. Some of them were good signings. You can't say Paddy McNair wasn't a good signing. Yeah, it was all right. You know, um, I thought Yanazai was a great signing, even though it was a loan. It didn't, didn't really, and just it just didn't fit. It, it just didn't work at all. He, you know, he, he was a huge disappointment. Um, at Sunderland, Yanazai, unfortunately. And, you know, relegation, you know, okay, well, things can't get any worse. Uh, Moisey, as you know, fell on his sword, he quit. He left uh, the club the money, though, didn't he? Sorry? He didn't take any money. No, he, he, he wrote off his contract effectively, walked away from it to his credit, and um, they made what I thought was another good appointment in Simon Grayson, someone else I know very well, who who's got f- four promotions on his CV? Really nice guy as well. Nice guy, um, done a good job at Preston the previous season in that division. knew what he knew what he wanted. Um, I thought that appointment would be a, would work. They started I, reasonably well, didn't they? Then fell away. Yeah, I think got five points for three games, and then you know they just couldn't win at home, couldn't they? And and in fact they couldn't win. Even from say, good, you won one game, you know, good positions, and uh, and lost his job. I still believe if they'd kept Simon, that have stayed up. You know, I, I do believe that, but because he lost his job after failing to beat Bolton Wanderers at home, and in the, the view then of Ellis Short was, well, if you can't beat Bolton Wanderers, you've got no chance. Well, Bolton Wanderers actually stayed up, didn't they? Yeah. So um, you know, and then Chris comes in. And um, quite a charismatic guy, said all the right things, yeah. made all the right noises, got too many wrong results. You know, there was a lot of talk with Chris Cohen, wasn't there? There was a lot of talk that a disastrous January transfer window when the policy oh, was proven yeah. to be wrong. Let's go for the best young players in the country who can get it on loan rather than getting in players who know this division mm-hmm. with a bit of experience. And the keeper situation. A bit of steel, the goalkeeping situation. Talking of steel, <laughs> the, goal, the goalkeeping situation uh, became a, a joke. Um, and But even with like six games to go, they could still have stayed up and should have stayed up. They're burning at home. God, Darren Bent. When you one up, when you well, I know, I know. Well, that just had to happen, didn't it? Yeah. When you one up at home to Burton Albion in a must-win game with five minutes left, yeah, I think it was, and you don't even get a point, you lose. So, you know, that was um, that was hard to believe what we were all seeing and very hard to take. Um, so once again, it was start again this season to bring it up to date, if you like. I know. Um, and but of course it's all been positive you know the cl- the, the ownership had to change the new owners have come in um what do you make of the new owners i was going to ask you this later yeah um i I've, I've had no dealings with them um you know as i say you know i live in manchester now my most most of my work was there um i've got to say they've certainly said all the right things but they've backed it up Mm-hmm. With the results, um, they made a very interesting appointment in Jack Ross, uh, which has been a success. Um, I think they got that right. He was the right sort of manager. They they, they needed a hungry, ambitious manager um, who who with a bit of 
steel in him, shall we say, a bit of fire in him, which I'm certain he's got because he's Scottish. <laughs> Scottish managers tend to have that. Um, and uh, the recruitment has been pretty good. Um, and they've got something going. They've got, um, there seems to be a great spirit. Um, the the relationship between the, the club and the fans it was breaking down, had broken down. It was broke. Yeah, that's right. It's been repaired, really. Yeah. Um, what, averaging over 30,000 in League yeah. One. Uh, fantastic away support, selling out every match. Even a checker trade against Morgan. Astonishing, 1,562. Was it it's two? Like, <laughs> astonishing, it's just... Proves how, I mean, no offense, how stupid Sunderland fans are, really, <laughs> in well, the nicest possible way. You know, it, it's it's that it's a way of life. Yeah, no, it, it, it's the way it is for the fans. And obviously, the next step is to get back, you know, go from the thirty thousands at home to the forty thousands at home. And I, I know they've already talked about that for the Bradford City yeah. game on Boxing Day. Still a big ask that, but I bet they get close to it if if they keep things going. Um, but there's a positive spirit about the club, which is, which is great to see, and um, and it's interesting as well to me that I think there's been three real bonuses um, for Jack Ross this season, and and certainly two, at least two, but I, I would say three, and that he's got players there he didn't expect to have there. He didn't. Ex- they thought Lee Catamol, Brian Oviedo. And Aidan McGeady would go. I think they were budgeting for those three to go. For for whatever reason, they all McGeady got injured. Yeah, McGeady got injured. That that was a big factor. They couldn't really get him off the yeah. wage bill, if you like. Um, so the McGeady was still there. Catamol and Oviedo didn't leave, and and th- those three players. They probably complicated Jack Ross's team selections at times when they've been fit and available. Um, but they are three players who, who could still play, in my opinion, in the Premier League, and um, you know, certainly at Championship level, high up anyway. Um, and they've strengthened the squad. They've, they've, they've given him um, three more options there at a good level, and um, and now what happens in January? We'll have to wait and see. Let's hope that. The squad doesn't break up, you know. Let's hope yeah. that the vultures don't swoop, and um, and it's not just a question of will somebody come and offer four or five million for Josh Madger and make it a difficult decision for the club. That will contract at the end of the season as Correct. well. Correct. Yeah, which, which they need to sort out. Which would be a, obviously a factor in the thinking, unless they can get him to sign a new deal. But I also hope that nobody comes in and takes Catamol, Oviedo, or McGeady. I'm kind of torn on them because I, from the club's perspective I know how much of a drain mm-hmm. them but yes. I think Catmore and Oviedo are mm-hmm. particularly mm-hmm. how much of a drain they are to the finances so I I can understand if they got rid of yeah. them because yeah. if they're on together what £80,000 mm-hmm. you know that's Yes. Ten players at this level, so yeah. I can understand if the yeah, I, I I could understand. I could understand the original thinking on it, and I can understand your thinking as well, Connor. Uh, I just think that um, I want something to have as many good players as possible. Yeah. Oh, and exactly, and yeah. you know me yeah. as well. If I'm sitting there in January, yeah. if I was playing football manager or something, <laughs> I'll keep them. You know, yeah. you, you you would have to think about it. And when they're in the championship, yeah. which they will be, fingers yeah. crossed, the end of the season, the wages aren't going to be. 
no. anywhere near as bad. And I think McGeady is is keeping fit. I think he is someone capable of being a make the difference player. Well, he is. He's already proved it. Yeah. Against Plymouth the other week. Yeah. Uh, I have a, a question here, and it dates back to 2012. Mm-hmm. So United lost the title at the Stadium Light. Yes. And City, obviously, the Aguero goal. But what did you make of the... A, the fact that it was at the same like United lost it when they thought it won it, but B, the fury at Sutherland fans celebrating mm. in Manchester United's misery, because I presume you will have got flack for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And um, and th- there was um, there was a lot of anger at that time uh, with Man United about the way Sutherland players, Sutherland fans, sorry, sort of um, took the mickey, shall we say. Um and particularly as because of what I said earlier, Connor, as well, there's huge respect in Manchester for Sunderland as a mm-hmm. club and for Sunderland supporters, and and um, you know the United players uh, and the United fans did not take that very well. Um, I think I think that was just a, a, a case of of Sunderland fans sort of um, reacting um, to the, to the situation on the day. And uh, saying, "Well, we haven't got a lot to shout about and a lot to <laughs> celebrate, so we'll have a bit of a, a bit of a laugh at that." I also think there's probably more of a bond between Sunderland and Man City than there is between Sunderland and and Man United, and and, and that um, maybe the clubs, but certainly the fans. Um, you know what I said about Man United fans, what they think about Sunderland is right in my experience. Um, but I think there's a greater bond between City fans and Sunderland fans. Um, I can remember um, as a fan going back to 1968, last day of the season, Man United v Sunderland, Newcastle v Man City, league title up for grabs between the two Manchester clubs. I was at Old Trafford as a Sunderland fan. Unbelievably, somehow, Sunderland won 2-1 against Bestlow and Charlton, etc. A few days later, these guys are winning the European Cup, beating Benfica. But that day, Sunderland beat United at Old Trafford. City famously won the league at uh, Newcastle, winning 4-3. And when I travelled back on the Sunderland Supports Club coaches and we stopped off at a service station, um, on one side of... Of the service station, there's about 15,000 Sunderland fans, by the way. <laughs> and on the other side, there's about 15,000 Man City fans. And I remember it's all merging together, converging on each other, um, hugging each other, shaking hands, you know. They were delighted because we'd beaten uh, United and we were delighted because they'd beaten Newcastle. Um, and I think there's been something between the clubs ever since then. And I know... I think it's been passed on from fathers to sons and everything else. And there's there's a there's some sort of a, a link there. There's been a few transfer deals done between the two clubs over the years as well, and um, I think there is a there is a bond. So, but you're right, uh, United. That was a day when United as a club and United's fans weren't happy with Sunderland. Where were you that day? Where was I that day? Not one of them, surely. Um, I that was a Sunday, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, it was a Sunday, yeah. I wasn't. I was I certainly wasn't at Sunderland. I can't remember where it was that day, but I certainly wasn't at at Sunderland that day. But I, I was. You would have remembered I, if you were at I, City as well. I, I was. Yeah, I'd, you know, I've got a feeling I wasn't at a match that day. Uh, I wouldn't be reporting a match live as a Sunday paper man. 
I was probably sitting at home watching Sky Sports or yeah. something like that and <laughs> watching everything develop everywhere. But um, but yeah, I, I certainly do remember the uh, the re- the reaction up here. I've got two final things. Um, number one, we surprised that Niall Quinn left the club when he did. So that's not as a player as a chairman. Um, I was disappointed to see Niall go. I think everyone like the club. Yeah. I think you could pinpoint. Yeah. The I mean, the second question I was going to ask was mm-hmm. what was the biggest mistake Ellis showed me in your opinion, and I think the same mm-hmm. question, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think Niall made way. Um, basically, didn't he? For Ellis Short, believing this was a guy to take the club mm-hmm. forward and had the had the resources to do it. Um, I think Ellis Short decided this is my train set. I'm going to play with it, and I don't need Niall Quinn around now. I think Niall realised that, you know, he was there was talk of him having some sort of like international role, wasn't there at the at the, at the time? And yeah. in terms of was it sponsorship or there was yeah commercial rumours he was going to end up at Man City as well, commercial element or something. But but um, it was a sad day when Niall left. Niall is uh, became. Um, somebody absolutely steeped in Sunderland Football Club. Not many people can claim to have done what he, he has done. In fact, Eight. can anyone ever claim to, to have played for a club, managed managed a club briefly and been chairman of a club? Um, and it was obviously at our club. So, um, you know, it was a sad day when Niall left. Um, I think he decided he was he wasn't wanted, really. You know, and he better if he moved on. And um, so, sh- should Ellis Short have kept him on um, and utilised Niall's strengths? Yes, I think he should. I think he should have kept him on as a focal. Even if Ellis Short had kept Niall on as chairman, yeah, he'd keep me, keep me the club owner. Fine, you know you do have clubs where you have an owner, but someone else is chairman. Yeah. Look at Chelsea, for instance. But also think about the fact that he's plunked in Margaret Byrne, mm-hmm. Martin Bain, mm-hmm. etc. Yeah. You know to be that role, mm-hmm. and yet he took Niall Quinn out of it, or sort yeah. of made him forced him out of the role. So it seems odd when he actually was looking for that person the yeah. whole time during his ownership. Yeah. And he actually had it there at the start. Mm-hmm. A couple of years ago, a, a great friend of mine, journalist Bob Cass, died. And after Cassie's funeral, which was a memorable occasion, we gave Bob the sort of send-off that he would have wanted. Um, I went into Durham that night to a pub called The Shakespeare in Durham, which is a big Sunland pub. And um, because I got a call saying, come over, Niall was in. Niall was in, Reedy was in. Um, there was a lot of Sunderland fans in who had been friends of Bob's. There was a few other people from football. Phil Brown was in, once again, a Sunderland mm-hmm. fan. Um, and um, a few journalists, friends of mine. And we went over there and we had a session in there. And I can still remember, as I walked through the door, Niall was carrying a tray with about 20 pints on it <laughs> over to this table full of Sunderland fans and, as I say, the people in our company. And uh, as I walked in the door, he says, what are you having? And I said, uh, I said, you've got your hands full there, literally. I said, I'll just, I'll just get a pint here. No, 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 no. He said, he said, order it up, I'm coming back to get it. 
and um, and we had a great night in there, and it was a great send off to a to a great journalist, Bob Cass. Um, but it was also a night which just illustrated to me, you know, the link between Niall Quinn and Sunderland, and I, I wish Niall was still involved in the back? club. You know, sorry. Do you think you'll ever come back? I don't think so now. I don't think so now because I mean, how how would you how would you fit in with the Stuart Donald regime now? You know. Yeah, there's always room to have somebody. Yeah. You know, even mm-hmm. if they're, you know, even if they're not directly involved. You know, somebody who's just around the club a bit more because he's went from being, well, most fans think he's the best thing since sliced bread. Why yeah. not have him around the club a little yeah. bit more? Yeah. Well, I'd certainly be happy. Yeah. To see Niall around the club, no doubt about that. Okay, well, um, I think we're all done here. I've kept you for, well, I ran 10 minutes over what I said, so that, that's good for me. No problems. Yeah, normally we're all over. So thanks, Paul, for coming on. Um, it's been interesting to hear your story, I suppose. I kind of call these oral histories. Yes, okay, fine. Yeah, that's what, that's what I said to Bob anyway. Like, <laughs> it's not a podcast, it's an oral history. <laughs> Very good. And I think you bought that more. So. Okay, great stuff. Well, listen, thanks for having me on, Connor. I've, uh, I've greatly enjoyed it. Um, <clears throat> It's never a problem for me to talk about Sunderland Football Club. (laughs) Cheers for coming on. Pleasure. Some exchange betting companies run short-lived promotions, like months-long offers of low commission. At BetDag, we wanted to change the way we did things, so we set our commission at 2% permanently. That's 2% on football, horse racing, golf, almost any sport. 2%. That's just one way that BetDag is changing for the better. For the better. Like you. BetDag, the 2% commission exchange. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.